Good evening. I'm Orson Welles. Tonight, broadcasting takes a giant leap backward. In this age of living color and stereophonic sound, the television show Moonlighting is daring to be different and share with you a monochromatic, monophonic hour of entertainment. Approximately 12 minutes into this evening's episode, the picture on your television screen will change to black and white. Nothing is wrong with your set. I repeat, nothing is wrong with your set. Tonight's episode is an experiment, one we hope you'll enjoy. So gather the kids, the dog, grandma, and lock them in another room. And sit back and enjoy this very special episode of Moonlighting. Welcome to the show, Moonlighting fans. Whether you're a Moonlighting fan from way back when, or whether you are new to Moonlighting and you want to know what all the hype is about, you have come to the right place. Hi, I'm Grace. And I'm Shauna. And we're your hosts for the podcast that is all about moonlighting. When we talk about moonlighting, we're talking about the Emmy award-winning 80s TV series starring Bruce Willis and Simple Shepherd. So if you're a fan of theirs, you're going to want to stay tuned as we review all 66 episodes. We hope you enjoy this journey with us because we are going to be watching the series episodes one by one and discussing them every week. Now, this is going to take several years, as you can imagine. So please join us because we are going to have so much fun along the way. We will also be releasing bonus episodes of interviews with creators, cast and crew to extend your listening experience. That's right. And we really want to include our Moonlighting fans in this project as much as possible. So write to us and let us know what your thoughts are and even if you have some trivia to disclose. Our email address is fans at moonlightingthepodcast.com and we will include you in our future episodes. So stay with us. Shauna and I are beyond excited to finally bring Moonlighting into the 21st century for some serious discussions. You up for it, Shauna? I sure am. Well, let's get started. Hello and welcome to Moonlighting the Podcast. Hi, Shauna. Hi, Grace. How are you today? I'm well, and how are you? Well, I am doing great because we get to talk about one of the most iconic episodes of Moonlighting today. Season 2, Episode 4, The Dream Sequence Always Rings Twice. Synopsis of the episode, this iconic episode is a tribute to the 1940s film noir, shot mostly in black and white from approximately 12 minutes into the episode. It was mainly shot on location at the Aquarius Theatre. Maddie and David learn of a murder committed at a 1940s nightclub by the current owner. Each dreams the role of the convicted murderer and the circumstances leading to the crime, but each dream sequence is coloured by the bias of the dreamer. Sybil Shepherd performs the big band songs, Blue Moon and I Told You, I Love Ya, Now Get Out. Orson Welles introduces the episode to alleviate the viewer's concerns to when the episode turns to black and white and that there is nothing wrong with their television set. This was his last performance, which was filmed exactly one week before his death. The episode first aired on the 15th of October, 1985. It was directed by Peter Werner. It was written by Deborah Frank, 
Carl Sorter and Glenn Gordon Caron. The guest stars, Orson Welles, of course, plays himself, Jack Bannon as Jerry Adams, Phil Rubenstein plays Mr Bigelow and Mr Sloan, Rally Bond plays Mr Potter, Frank X McCarthy plays Lieutenant Matthews, Freeman King plays the bartender, and Nick DiMauro as the priest. I just want to give a big shout out to production design, James Agassi in particular, who did an amazing job reproducing the 40s in such an authentic manner. James did 65 out of the 66 episodes, and unfortunately he passed away in September 2019 at the age of 78. Uh, would have been great to have a chat with him. Also, Bill Harp for set decoration. Bill's actually won two Emmy Awards, one in 1965 for My Name is Barbara, which excites me because I'm a crazy Barbara Streisand fan. And the other Emmy he won was in 1989 for Womb with a View. Really? Uh, not to mention Robert Turteris for his amazing costume design. They were very blessed to have him on this show. His designs were amazing and he made Sybil look so beautiful. And we can't forget Jerry Fenneman for his creative lighting. Oh, God, yeah. James Agassi, yeah. Jerry Fenneman. Mm. Gosh, the lighting is just so beautiful. It's just, I think, what he is so good at. That's just yeah. his niche, that kind of lighting. You know, he always tried to light Sybil like that 1940s leading lady anyway, you mm. know. Remember um, in last week's episode, I think it was last week's episode, um, the episode where she says, you swing from a vine and it's that bar of light across her eyes. It's yeah. just like that, you know. So beautiful. Yep. Yeah, it's a great introduction by Orson Welles. Glenn asked him to come and do the intro to the show because Orson was really well known for his film noir, you know, all his 40s and 50s black and white movies. But what was your impression? Do you think he was reading off cards? Yes, I think he was reading off cards. You can kind of see his eyes following. Probably they had cards up for him, you know, since he's a bit um, advanced in age at this point. Uh, yeah, I think. Uh, he was reading off cards. That's the impression that I got. Yeah, I got the impression he was reading. But even so, I thought it was funny. And Glenn wrote a nice little funny ditty for him. So I thought it was great. Yeah, it was um, It was amazing, really. I mean, here's this, gosh, I mean, Orson Welles, iconic person, introducing Moonlighting, perfect person to talk about it because of his history in film and, and the black and white movies that he put together, like Citizen Kane, and, you know, which some consider to be the, the best movie ever made. And beautifully shot anyway. Also, if you watch the commentary on the episode, which I think there's at least one, maybe two on that episode, Orson Welles was Sybil's longtime friend. And when she was with Peter Bogdanovich, Orson lived with them for a time. So I think Glenn kind of knew um, or had the contact of Orson through Sybil. So it's all um, kind of a really neat connection and might've been part of the reason why Orson agreed to do it, you know? Yeah, and so too. Yeah. And it's the last thing that he ever did on film, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Must have been a shock he died so soon after. Yeah, exactly a week afterwards. Glenn does talk about, Glenn directed him, you know, which I think was a real feather in Glenn's cap doing something with Orson Welles. And he mentioned it in our interview with Glenn mm. as one of the highlights of his time on Moonlighting, you know, this time with Orson and everything. And it just sounded like such a great experience and it's really a great thing how lucky we are to have that as part of this episode. His career starts probably around 1933. He was a director, actor, writer. Oh, he was so many things, actually. <laughs> if you look at his credits, he did other things as well. But 
I'm not sure, but I think he may have um, even lit his own movies. Sybil tells a story about Greg Tolan, I think was, um, maybe he did the lighting on Citizen Kane or uh, one of the movies that Orson did. But Orson, I think used to, when he was in theater, he used to light his own stuff. And then it was hard for him not to light, you know, I mean, he just knew so much about film in every way. You know, I think that's why he had that bit of a reputation of being difficult because he used to argue with the studios. They wanted to change his scripts. They wanted to change a lot of things, you know, shots that he had already done. And he was forever writing memos to them, requesting changes and changing it back to the way it was and things like that. So, yeah, Yeah, so he did a great movie in 1941 called Citizen Kane. If you haven't watched it, listeners, I don't know if it's streaming, but definitely if you can get a hold of it, watch it. There's another movie in, from 1946 called The Stranger, and he plays Professor Charles Rankin. I actually watched it last night and mm. amazing. And it was great to watch it because I saw the similarities between this episode and that movie, the lighting, yeah. the silhouette, blocking half the face, the shadows, Yes. There's a lot of shadows in dream sequence if you have a look. Yep. So that was great to watch that. It was very film noir. The Lady from Shanghai, which I told you recently and you watched it as well, that yeah. was 1947. That's right. that one. Um, yes. And 1949, The Third Man, which I've already mentioned on our, on our episodes, one of my favourite movies of um, Orson Welles. He was actually on an episode of I Love Lucy, um, 1956. Hmm. And there's another great movie of his from 1958 called Touch of Evil. And I started watching it last night, but I didn't complete it. But it's very, very film noir, very dark. And it's got Charlton Heston. It's got Ava Gabor, Joseph Cotton. It's an all-star cast in this thing. Edward G. Robinson, he did a lot of um, films with Edward G. Robinson because he loved him. And also he was actually the voice of Robin Masters in Magnum P.I. Really? And then he did Moonlighting in 85. And then he did the Transformers, the movie, uh, 1986. And he was the voice of Unicron. Hmm. He was actually known as the Great One. Yeah. Which fits him quite well, don't you think? I think he was multi-talented, yes. I mean, from acting, directing, lighting, you know, like he filled all roles in cinema. So he's definitely one of the great ones. Yes, and he was very gifted with many arts as well. Um, Magic, he played the piano. He loved to paint. Wow. And he travelled the world with his father when he was a child. He was married to Rita Hayworth from 1943 to 48. Oh, wow. Um, And then from 55 to 85 until his death, he was married to an Italian actress, Paola Mori. Hmm. Just a little bit of trivia. He was born on the same day that Babe Ruth hit his very first home run. Oh, really? ABC TV wanted him to play Mr. Rourke on Fantasy Island in 1977, but the series producer, Aaron Spelling, insisted on Ricardo Montalban instead. (laughs) How funny. Mm. He was named number 16 of the 50 greatest screen legends list of the American Film Institute. He lives in infamy in the film industry. Mm. Yeah. He considered black and white to be the actor's best friend, feeling that it focused more on the actor's expressions and feelings than on hair, eye and wardrobe colour. I can see that. Yeah. 
was very good friends with Peter Bogdanovich, in whose house he lived for several years during Bogdanovich's affair with Sybil Shepherd. Wells even gave Bogdanovich written instructions to finish his last film, The Other Side of the Wind, in 2018 before his death. That's interesting. I remember reading about that. I think they did eventually finish it. Yeah. Yeah. His average dinner famously consisted of two steaks, cooked rare, and a pint of Scotch whiskey. This contributed to his obesity in his later life and his eventual death. And as we can see on screen in the intro, he was quite an imposing gentleman. Yeah. So that's our awesome Wells. God bless him. And oft-quoted line from Moonlighting, um, you use it a lot, Grace, is gather the dogs, the kids, grandma, put them in a room. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy the hour of moonlighting. The, dog, the kids, grandma, and lock them in another room. And if anybody's <laughs> listened to the first, the intro episode of Moonlighting the podcast, yeah, now you will know why I say that. Because if, if yeah. you're listening to this podcast and you were only very new to moonlighting and you listened to my introduction, you would have thought, what the hell is she talking about? Why is she talking about grandma and dogs and locking people up? But yeah. that's the reason why. So there you go. Yeah. I think the reason that they had him on was interesting. Being 1980s and not too long into color TV, they had to let viewers know that when the screen went to black and white, nothing was wrong with your television and this is the way it's supposed to be. And that's also the reason why Glenn did not want it shot in color and then transferred to black and white because he knew that the network might get nervous and air it in color. And he was not going to take that risk because it had to be done authentically in black and white. And thank God he did. And two styles of black and white, as they often discussed, just so much detail went into the show. But yeah, just the reason that Orson was even on the beginning is just, we have to remember the, the time of life um, that people might actually think that something was wrong with their TV if they saw it was suddenly in black and white. So yeah, great intro. But I like how they set him up in front of a fireplace, you know, with a lamp and books in the background. And I think it was Orson's style. I wonder if he had any say in that. I don't know. It sounded like um, they set it all up. A car pulled up. He got out. He walked into the set. He sat down from what I remember from the commentary. Wasn't he smoking a cigar? Yes. Yes. Yeah. It was a big cigar. (laughs) I don't know. I think uh, they set it all up. Orson came, sat down. I don't think he had any saying that I think uh, they just kind of knew his style and then everybody at the studio found out he was there so they all snuck in while they were filming amazing yeah just to be breathing the same air as Orson Welles yeah really amazing and apparently he was um, really kind and took the time to sign autographs and knew so much about other you know the people that were there that he was familiar with you know had, had the past with like one of their relatives worked on a a film with a relative of theirs and knew all about the person and yeah just really was a personable guy which is really uh, nice to hear as well and deborah frank her script she got him to autograph that script and so precious to her you know yeah they got a picture with them wasn't that in scott ryan's book she was in the background and it was her idea to get a picture (laughs) i know i look at that photo and i think the poor thing she should have been standing at the front (laughs) i know All right, let's start talking about the dream sequence always rings twice. Would you like to begin, Shauna? Yes, of course. I would love to get into it. So it opens after the moonlighting credits, of course, panning around the old theater. 
and there's just a bunch of junk lying around, you know, that had been left from the old days. And you're hearing voices from the past, voices from the past, voices from the past. And this time, and I don't normally have it on, I have the closed captioning on, and it was actually saying what those voices were saying. So I could hear a little bit more detail. And then, gosh, Moonlighting is just so the detail, you know, and especially this episode, the detail they put into this episode. The voice from the past says, okay, it's showtime. And then, you know, Maddie and David come through the door. So I thought that was really cool um, how we kind of get ghosts from the past in the theater. And then, boom, we're like into the world of Maddie and David as they walk through the door. And there's a, a lot of fast dialogue from the beginning. So I really loved just paying a little bit more attention to those voices and what they were saying, hearkening back to the past, but then saying, okay, showtime, and then Moonlighting begins. What I found from that was, and I'd never noticed it before, if you look at the cut, so first of all, you have the music stands, and once you're looking at that, you hear the instruments playing. Mm. Then it cuts Mm. to the ropes on the wall. The man yells out five minutes to curtain. Ah, so okay. when you're watching it, the person talking is appropriate to the actual cut. So then you've got the makeup table, the broken lights on it, and there's girls giggling. Then you've got the lighting equipment and the guy says something like, you know, house lights, house lights are on, whatever. Then you've got the table and chairs that people would have sat on to watch the show. And while you're watching that, this woman's voice says, we waited over a month for these tickets. Wow. Um, and you hear cups clinking and that sort of thing. And then you see a room, must have been just backstage, where you see the dressmakers, models all scratched and everything. And he says, people, take your places, that sort of thing. And what I also noticed is not all the items, but most of those items that you see in these cuts at the start are used during the episode. Mm. It was a great beginning to the episode with the the ghosts' voices. You know, they're still there from the 1940s. So, and the production design and the dust and the webs and it was just perfect how it all started. I know, yeah. I mean, and what you're saying is just even a layer more than I even noticed. You know, that's that's what I love about Moonlighting, just um, how there's always so many layers to it and um, all of the detail that they put into matching all of these voices with the images and things like that. And that's almost like it's like subconscious, you know, because I really only notice it this time because we're paying more attention to the mm. to the episodes. And I've watched this episode more than any other Moonlighting episode for sure. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of a comfort episode that I would go to just turn it on before bed, just turn it on, you know, mm. in the background, just turn it on to watch. It's an episode that I show people if they want to watch Moonlighting for the first time. It's a real go-to episode. And still, it's the first time I'd noticed some of the the voices, what they were saying, and now you're pairing it with the images. And so, yeah, that's such a wonderful start to a wonderful episode. There's just so many layers that if you're, you know, watching it back in 1985, you probably wouldn't have noticed this stuff. You just don't Mm -hmm. have enough time. It just goes quick. Yeah. And as Maddie and David fly through the door, they're already mid-conversation and it's moving so fast. And just (laughs) even watching and trying to take notes for the episode it was so hard to write fast enough you really have to pause and take time to write because it's like clicking on so fast but yeah so they shoot through the door and yeah they're already mid-conversation maddie's upset gee that's a surprise <laughs> yep she doesn't like infidelity cases even though i wrote in this case there is no infidelity but she still doesn't like it she says it again i hate this 
What he goes, what making money? Yeah, which is I know. They've got a client, they've got a case, and come on, this has to be. And he says it in his monologue. This is the backbone. This has to be a huge portion of their business. People wanting their significant others spied on, you know, infidelity, cheating, and and things like that, right? And that's so true because if you watch any other type of show that's got a private investigator in it, what's the main plot? Infidelity. So. Yeah. How many times does he have to tell her? He's always reminding her, this is the backbone of the investigation business. She says when they walk in, picking through peels, spying on spouses, profiting from infidelity. What's picking through peels? I think going through people's garbage. Oh, is that what she's talking (laughs) about? Okay. (laughs) I'm like, what is she talking about? Okay, I gotcha. Going through the bin, as you would say. You know, I love how he says infidelity is as American as apple pie. Yeah, that's how common it is. And that makes Maddie angry. She doesn't yeah, and want- he says, well, if it wasn't for that, you wouldn't have Ann Landers. You wouldn't have a divorce court and you wouldn't have any dynasty. Well, you say dynasty. But who's yeah. Ann Landers? Oh, Ann Landers was a advice column where people would write in um, the newspaper and ask Ann Landers advice about their relationships. Oh, okay. So I love Bruce's monologue here. It's hilarious. I love it. And I love watching Sybil's reaction to it because as he moves his hand and as he's, you know. Yeah, she um, puts her head up. Yeah, she's like, (laughs) (laughs) she's following his finger as he is telling her exactly why this is the backbone of the business and why they need to take these kind of cases. I for one, I for one. I I I love it when he goes, I don't know about you. I don't know about you. And he says it twice. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know about you, but I, for one, and he says that twice, I, for one, I, for one, drop down on my knees every night. I'll tell you something else. I don't know about you. I don't know about you, but I, for one, I, for one, hit my knees every night and thank the man upstairs that there is a little bit of dishonesty left in this otherwise sunny world. You just think about that. That's all I have to say. (laughs) But I, you know, I've listened to that so many times and gosh, I mean, now that we've talked to Glenn, we had our interview with Glenn and he talked about the musicality. I was really noticing it so much in the dialogue. Yes. In this episode. And here's and Bruce using his fingers, you know, his hands when he talks, yeah. I think is part of him hitting those beats of the musicality, you know? Yeah. Oh, it's a yeah. great scene. I love how he says it. And it's right. It's definitely got the music to it. And he's convincing. I know. And Maddie's taken aback. He walks away leaving Maddie like, whoa. Yeah. She doesn't say a word. Left her speechless. Yeah. That's unusual. <laughs> I know. But you know what? When he's right, he's right. And that's all I have to say. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, so he walks away and uh, he's got, they've got the photographs for, what's his name? Mr. Bigelow. Mr. Bigelow. I love how he calls Mr. Bigelow too. He goes, Mr. Bigelow. Just like he calls Mr. Pesto in the last episode. Mr. Pesto. Mr. Bigelow, it's soup. It's soup. And Mr. Bigelow's in the middle of an important meeting. He breaks away to meet with Maddie and David. He thanks them for coming down. Looks like he's in negotiations to buy this nightclub, which was amazing in its heyday back in the 40s, the Flamingo Cove, and he wants to buy it, but he wants to demolish it and wait for a developer to offer him money for the land. Really? I'm like, no. How great would that be if we had big band nightclubs? I would love that. Yeah. And this theater was demolished because it's not there anymore. It was on um, 
Sunset Boulevard, I believe. Yeah, pretty close to where I used to live in LA. And yeah, it's not there anymore. Because I remember I looked at where the location was at the time and it's, they did demolish it. Yeah. Um, but was it open at the time or was it just a, an empty building? It was just an empty building oh. at that time. Yeah. When the moonlighting used it. But um, he says he's going to buy this place and turn it into a flea market. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know. Oh. Yeah. Just so typical kind of businessman, right? Just looking to make some money off of this. But So Maddie and David show him the photos of his wife not cheating on him. And he's very upset about that. Yeah, that's pretty af- funny. Because he can't afford to be married to this tomato. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I love um, that. He's like. My wife taking a walk by herself, my my wife eating lunch by herself, my wife, you know, is just like stopping yeah. by herself. <laughs> yeah. Mundane things, hasn't caught her doing anything. So so great with moonlighting, always, always not exactly what you expect. So of course he changes his mind. He's not gonna buy the place. So he runs down to the guys that he was negotiating with and he's not gonna buy it if he has to um, share half with Godzilla. That's it. I ain't buying this place. If I have to end up splitting the profits with Godzilla. People say romance is dead. (laughs) (laughs) The actor that they start talking to is the current owner of the club and his father left it to him. So he's inherited this, this amazing 40s nightclub. Yeah. Now, this actor is Jack Bannon. He's taller than Bruce. There you go. Just thought I'd mention that. Six foot three. He was known for his work on Little Big Man in 1970, LA Heat in 1996, Hard Vice in 1994, and he was actually married to Ellen Travolta. So he is John Travolta's brother-in-law. Ah, I did not know that. Hmm. Unfortunately, he passed away in October 2017. His career goes back a long way, back to 1964, but he's mainly known for those shows I just mentioned. Plus, he was in the Beverly Hillbillies from 1964 to 69. He was in Petticoat Junction from 1963 to 69. Do you remember Petticoat Junction? Yeah, I do. Yeah, Yeah, I remember watching it as a kid. He did about four episodes of Knox Landing, he did Moonlighting and he did two episodes of um, Dynasty. He played Dennis Champlin and he did two episodes of Murder, She Wrote and many, many other things. So that's Jack Bannon. Did you talk about Mr. Bigelow? With Mr. Bigelow, Mr. Sloan slash Mr. Sloan. So he was born in 1940 in Bronx, New York, and he's an actor known for Robocop 2 in 1990, Star Trek 4. The Voyage Home in 1986, and Tango and Cash in 89. He unfortunately passed away in 1992, aged 51. His career began in 1976. Um, He was in Kojak in 77. And what a surprise, he was in Remington Steel in 83. (laughs) Um, He did three episodes of Hill Street Blues from 83 to 84, which I've seen already as soon as I said it's those episodes I watched um, recently and as soon as I saw him, I go, oh, my God, that's Mr. Bigelow. (laughs) Yeah, Moonlighting in 85 and Robocop 2 and he did so many other things. So that is Phil Rubenstein. Great. 
Thank you for supporting us, Moonlighting fans. We hope you are enjoying our episodes, and if you feel so inclined, Shauna and I would be very appreciative if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts so that we know we're on track with our content and continue to provide you with a great experience. One thing that crossed my mind for the first time, Grace, when I watched this episode yesterday, which others may have put two and two together you know, before this, but I was thinking, wow, this is kind of like the Wizard of Oz, where you see these people in modern day, and then in the dreams, they play out these roles. You know, did you ever think about that before? Oh, it's kind of like the Wizard of Oz, where like Annie M and um, her, her uncle, then they all take on roles inside the dream. Yeah, not specifically. I did compare it to Wizard of Oz because they had the same problem with Wizard of Oz with the black and white and the color. Mm. They didn't want to do yeah. it or something. Yeah. But you're right. It is a similar thing because it's a dream sequence. It's like, you know, it's a spoiler alert if you haven't seen Wizard of Oz, but it's a dream sequence. <laughs> True, <laughs> All <yeah>. a dream. <laughs> All a dream. But what's also funny is it's even funnier that I didn't put it together earlier because when David wakes up from his dream later in this episode, he says, Annie M, Uncle Henry. That's right. So he references Wizard of Oz. And so they were aware of it as well. So, yeah, because Judy Garland says exactly the same thing when she wakes up. Yeah. It was funny that they referenced it on the very day that I realized this was similar to Wizard of Oz. So then they hear about the old murder of the Flamingo Cove while they're talking to the owner of the building. Yeah. So Jerry explains the history of the building, like the Duke. Lady Day, the Dorseys, Glenn Miller used to play here, four presidents, Judy Garland, yeah, and they had to mention Judy Garland, obviously. They reckon she had her first kiss and her first drink. I just like the way he explains the history of the place and they're all looking around and Bruce is looking up at the lights and she's intrigued with everything. But I really like how they start with he goes around the corner and he turns off the light and then you get that silhouette. It's beginning that transition into the black and white yeah and then he says about the flamingo cove murder and uh david had heard about the murder but maddie hadn't kind of like a hollywood folklore and i have a question about that because david said oh yeah that's right it was a singer or something and the owner who is future jerry says jim dandy yeah jim you dandy. notice that yeah now who's jim dandy hmm did they change the name after halfway through the script or something? Because the way the owner says it, he goes, yeah, Jim Dandy, and um, she fell in love with a trumpet player and they killed her husband, but they both denied it. Now, first of all, he wasn't a trumpet player. I just thought I'd mention that. He's a cornet player because a trumpet is different to a cornet. <laughs> um, so, but he says Jim Dandy. And I checked the subtitles and he says Jim Dandy. So I don't know who Jim Dandy is. The way he says it, it sounds like it's Rita's husband. Yeah. Right. right? Jim Dandy as if they murdered Jim Dandy, but yeah, it's Jerry Adams. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder either it's a reference that we don't know and one of our listeners will write in and tell us mm. or they change the name or something like that. Yeah. And they had already filmed that scene, so they weren't going to film it again. Yeah, I don't know. Right. That's just the impression I got. Yeah, if anyone out there knows what the reference uh, to Jim Dandy is or if it's just a goof or or what, yeah, let us know. People often write in and 
tell us things that we're, we're not really sure ourselves about the and reference. Did you notice that when she said, oh, who did do it? David is looking at her intently. Yeah, I've noticed that before. Just like yeah. Yes, that's the other thing I noticed. <laughs> when the club owner is explaining to them the history of the place, they're walking towards the camera and her dress matches the decor of the place in the background. <laughs> Did you notice that? Really? No, I didn't. But kind of pastels? Yeah, it's all pink, yeah. matching her dress. That's funny. And then we switch to the car scene. <laughs> we get uh, classic uh, drive and talk. Really classic drive and talk, though. Really, like one of the best... Well, there's just so many good driving talks, but just moonlighting really hitting its stride with this episode. And it's fast. It's so fast. And the musicality of it, you know, I'm just really noticing that more, um, especially the am not R2, am not R2, am not R2. It's just the timing of all of that. Mm. They just do it so well. The timing of it is just great. Sybil and Bruce are just really like hitting it's, their stride. It, yeah, it thing. is so well done. And the capturing and the delivering of the great dialogue. It's all like packaged and like showcased really well in this car scene. The timing of it's terrific. Really good. Listeners there, if you just go and listen to them saying, I'm not R2, I'm not R2, I'm not, it's just that, the timing, yeah, just is perfect. Yeah. But it's not like the lady in the iron mask where he lost his spot. <laughs> <laughs> no, but a page was missing out of his script. Wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. There's a page missing out of my copy of the script. <laughs> yeah, there's a page missing out of my copy of the script. So, gosh, and just even that one line is just, you know, 1980s. It's not even done much today. No. Actually acknowledging in the moment that you're a TV character. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. Pretty good. Now, when they're going back and forth and they're having this conversation about how Sybil, sorry, Maddie automatically assumes that the woman was coerced and it was the man who drove her to kill. Maddie's point of view is that... It was the guy's fault. David's response, you think the boyfriend killed the husband just because he's a man. Yes. And that makes you a sexist. And that makes you a sexist. But this line, you think the, the boyfriend killed the husband just because he's a man. Oh, so is he saying you assume that the man is the one who killed the husband? Yes. This line just stood out to me because did they know? Well, I guess David did know more about the murder. They weren't really told that they weren't really told the detail about the murder. And then he's, he has this information already. You know what I mean? Like how, how does he know that it was the, like a boyfriend? I don't know. Maddie assumes that she fell for the wrong guy and he killed her husband. David is assuming that he fell for the wrong girl and she made him kill her husband. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, okay, I guess his quote makes sense. I was just thinking when he said that, well, wait, we didn't get all the details about the boyfriend killed the husband just because of man, blah, blah, but okay, makes more sense to me now. Thank you. <laughs> she really seems heated in this episode. You know, this to me might be an example of a time when they had a fight before the fight scene that she talks yeah. about because she's like on the verge of just being really, really, really angry. And she's even like growling, doing that growling that she does. I love her growling. Yeah. It just really like she's so mad and he's so calm, which is so much more infuriating. Yeah. And he's accusing her. He's accusing her of 
of being a sexist. What makes you think it was the guy who did it? Why couldn't it have I been know. her that killed him? I know, I know. And this is so 80s battle of the sexes, topical. And she's just incensed at being kind of called out that you're assuming exactly what you don't want other people assuming about women. You're assuming that because he's a man, he killed the husband to have her like that, um, you know, assuming that the, the man was the bad yeah. person. And, and David's woman. argument is, you had to kill her husband to have her. That's crazy. Why buy the cow when you get the milk for free? <laughs> I know, I know. And she's Like, why would he have to kill the husband? You know, He's already sleeping with her. He's already yeah. sleeping with her anyway. That really throws her over the edge. What? Excuse me? You heard me. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not. R2, R2. And then, of course, the best little part when she says, not another word, not another peep until we get back to the office. And what does he do? Peep. <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So they go back to the office and she just roars in like a crazy lion and slams the door. We have a door slam. That's our first door slam for the episode. And he walks in calmly whistling that tune that he always whistles. I think it's the, the Bugs Bunny. And this is the first time they split the screen. I don't know, really know if they do that again. I don't think so from memory. But it was a great way to have both of them on screen talking on the phone as opposed to later on when they had to pre-record them. And I just love how he answers the phone. Men's room. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And now it's like he knows it's her. But uh, one thing um, before we go on to that about um, I think we get a double door slam because uh, she storms into the office, slams the door, and then she storms into her office and slams the door. Yep. Yeah. I've got here two door slams. So she enters the door, slams the door, goes past poor Agnes, who says, good evening, Miss Hayes, and growls and then goes in her office and slams the door. Whereas he right. comes in, leaves the front door open and goes into his office and shuts the door nicely. And his calmness compared to her, he's so happy because he's got her so riled up and he's not wrong. And that's what really pisses her off. Um, but she is assuming that the man was the murderer and things like that without knowing all the details. So I think that's why she's really mad is that he's kind of right. But it is just funny how he is really very calm, cool, collected, sauntering in, whistling a tune, and she's just so angry. I am not a sexist. Not only are you a sexist, but you are the sexiest sexist. <laughs> but I've ever had the good fortune to satirize. Satirize? 
etc 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 yeah i just love it when she's angry she does such a good angry yeah she does these deep breaths and these growls and then her screams and i just love her i know i'd love her too <laughs> and yes the whole men's room okay um everything he says on the phone just gets her more angry and i think she's calling him to rile him up as well or trying to prove that she's not wrong or something, you know, she thought like by calling him, she was going to get something out of that conversation. She only got more riled up. Wasn't going to happen. You can't argue with him. Men's room. I am not a sexist. Not only are you a sexist, but you are the sexiest sexist. It has ever been my good fortune to satirize. Satirize. Satirize, scrutinize, fantasize, etc., etc., etc. And so she goes home. She goes home and storms out. Let me say, I'm going home. Goodbye, Mrs. And she exits the right way, Grace. She does exit the right way. Yes. No mm. more going to the right. She goes mm. to the left where the elevators are. So she goes home and she slams the door yet again. <laughs> this is when the door slamming really is. It's kicking off now. It's yeah. kicking off. Yes. Yeah. It's actually interesting in the life of the series to see when the door slamming really began and the really angry fights. And this is, this is when it is because we only first got a real, a real door slam last episode. And now we're door slamming three door slams in and we're only a few minutes into the episode, but That's right. We've only had two door slams from money talks, Maddie walks. And isn't that crazy? Yeah. So yeah, I was interested to see when the door slamming really began. And this is really uh, these last two episodes are when it really kicks off. Like you say, She's home and gosh, she's still so pissed off when she gets home. She kicks off her shoes or one of them. Yeah, one of them. <laughs> and I think it's a great shot because I think that's Sybil because I don't think that's Maddie. Do you notice that? Because she kicks it and she thinks, oh, oh, and she's looking up and she's thinking, oh, my God, that wasn't supposed to go over there. Did you In think the, that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. She's like, oop, like maybe she kicked it too high in the commentary. <laughs> They say that the shoe um, hit one of the sound guys. Oh, really? <laughs> that's probably why she's like, like, oops, kind of like, I didn't mean to kick it that high. I, I always think that's civil as well. And it, she's just slamming everything. She slams her shoe. She slams her jacket. She slams her, her wine. <laughs> and I really like how she slams her, the jacket when she takes it off because she puts it down. <laughs> puts it down again and then thinks, no, I'm, I think I'll do that again. So she does it three times to show <laughs> how angry she is. Yeah. So I think that was a Sybil ad lib. Yeah, I think she's just uh, really putting a point on her anger. And she's got her crystal decanter of Chardonnay at hand. Get a little wine in her. What makes you think it's Chardonnay? I don't know. It looks like scotch whiskey to me. Oh, you think it was, but she puts it in a wine glass, doesn't she? Yeah. But why would you have Chardonnay in a decanter? Wouldn't that have to to be in the fridge? Mm, True. (laughs) But she wouldn't put scotch. I mean, she's a refined woman. She wouldn't put scotch into a wine glass. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. But it's, yeah. Okay, let's settle on apple juice. probably the reality yeah i think so and she's muttering yeah. under her breath silly sexy sexist silly yeah. sexy sexist. yeah she's me a sexist. that's so yeah. silly 
And it just shows me that she's angry because, I, yeah, she knows he's right. I feel a bit of guilt in her. Yeah. And that's why she's so angry. And she walks around with the drink. She walks around the couch and I see that bloody doll on the piano again. (laughs) The silly sexist. Me, a sexist. That's so silly. (laughs) And then she puts on the record player. Now, since when is a record player behind the couch? Can you explain that to me, please? Needed it for the scene, Grace. <laughs> we can't waste time her going to the closet, getting out her record player, wherever she would keep it. I don't think we've ever seen a record player in Maddie Hayes' house before that, but no. I like that she's got some music there to listen to. But anyway, it's just the perfect transition. The music that starts playing and she lays down on the couch and she has her wine and she quickly falls asleep. She goes from angry to asleep very quickly. Yes. But one thing before that I noticed if you have a look at the pillows, obviously yeah. they've got to do several takes. I know that. But if yeah, you look yeah. at the pillows, it's like somebody has been lying there for about three hours, having a little nap on the um, on the set, or she'd already done several takes. But when she walks around to the pillows, the pillows have already been lied on. Mm, right. Yeah, they should have they should have fluffed them between takes. That's we right. Notice that. See, they could have hired me to do that. Way. I would have been a nice pillow fluffer. I know. Yeah. Continuity. We would have been great at that. We would have paid attention to every detail. Oh, absolutely. And the music transitions us smoothly into the first dream sequence. But can I ask you, as that's happening, I don't like the dialogue there. She should have been saying something else. What did she say? Because she says someone scrutinized the silly, sexy, sexist. Someone scrutinized a silly, sexy, sexist. Yeah. Well, now if she's falling asleep yeah. and she disagrees with him, why would she be saying someone scrutinized a silly, sexy? I understand what she's saying because she's talking about what he just said to her on the phone. But if you were angry and you're lying there and you're falling asleep, wouldn't you say it's not true? Well, how could he say such a thing? Or I'm not a sexist. I don't know. I just find that section. It's alliteration, Grace. I think probably they just liked how it sounded. Someone scrutinizes silly, sexy, sexy, you know, all that. Yeah, it's just it's just the sound, the music to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, someone scrutinizes silly, sexy, sexy. Yeah, the alliteration of the that S sound, I think. Probably Glenn, but maybe one of the other writers just liked the sound of it and slipping into sleep. Silly, sexist. Someone scrutinized. The silly, sexy, sexist. Someone scrutinized the sexy, sexist. So. <gasps> Someone scrutinized. And yeah, bringing us to the first dream sequence, which is just a lot of fun. And it happens 11 minutes and nine seconds in. And what did Orson Welles say? About 12 minutes in? He said approximately 12 minutes. Yeah. But yeah, that's a great way to transition into black and white by playing the record and it goes to the old sort of gramophone type old record players and we go to a scene where jerry and rita are rehearsing yeah how gorgeous does she look in this dress that's the thing this is to me it is the peak 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 beauty for both sibling bruce this episode in particular and just the 
lighting, the costuming, the makeup, hair, and everything all put together. Yes. And her classic looks just really are made for this era. Yeah, her hair is perfect for this. Yeah. Um, yes, and, and then putting perfect. French rolls and, you know, all that sort of thing in her hair. looks. She looked amazing. And the shoulder pads and the dresses. <laughs> yeah, I would just love to talk to the hair and makeup and costuming people for this episode because they did a perfect job making it look so authentic for the time. Yeah, so she's gorgeous. And um, now she's married to Jerry in the dream. And she's her persona is... She's like sweet, supportive. I wrote the look, the feel, the music. It's all so great. It's just all so such a comfortable world to slip into. And gosh, just think about it. Sybil and Bruce and these other actors, because they get to play a couple different roles. But after playing Maddie and David for, you know, now into the second season, they get to play what, three different characters. It must've been really fun for her to play the sweet side of Rita and the body side of Rita and then get to play Maddie as well. And yeah, they're playing three different characters. So yeah, it must've been really fun for them to slip into these different characters and they kind of embody them perfectly each time. And they look like they're having fun too. Yeah. I think they love these kind of episodes where they can take on different roles and do something different. And I think Sybil really appreciates this time in film. I think she studied it a lot when she was with Peter Bogdanovich and probably discussed a lot with Orson and all of that stuff. So I think that she was really excited. She seems excited and she seems to really love playing the roles and doing this episode. I really like the um, the shot of while they're rehearsing, there's a shot of them two with the big band rehearsing downstairs through the window. Yeah. Which is a good intro to the lighting signal. So they have to do that lighting signal to let them know that, yes, we know we're coming down now. Yeah. And you're right. She is very supportive, telling him how good he is. Have you asked Sloan for a raise? And he feels bad about it because there's people out of work. I don't know whether this is during wartime or just after it. That's the only thing I was trying to work out. But anyway, it's mid 40s, I suppose. But as he says, you know, you're the reason they come into the club, the boys home from the war. Yeah. It's interesting how they're setting it up. They're a sweet, supportive couple that's about to be corrupted by. This cornet player comes in. Yeah, and it's interesting how when they come down the stairs, he's in front of her. It's like the sign of the times where the man was the master of his domain. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. However, he waited for her at the bottom of the stairs and took her hand. Okay. I just just thought that was interesting. Yes. When they climbed up out of there, slightly before that, he lets her go up the ladder first. But, Mm -hmm. yeah, there's a blooper. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. <laughs> a pretty funny blooper where his face ends up right at her, right at her ass. <laughs> so what was the sound? Was there a sound? See, this is what I don't understand. That blooper, Yeah, I thought they were laughing because somebody made a sound in the background. Oh, okay. There's a blunt sound like somebody's got a drum and hit it. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, are you thinking it's because... He put his face on her bum or something. When I look at that blooper, I think it's the timing, how the timing of everything happened. It's kind of like the blooper with Bruce and that guy and um, yes. on the train. Yes. When they, the timing, they like, you know, come face to face at an odd moment. It seemed like that oh. where she went up the stairs and he went too quickly behind her. So his face was like right at her butt. And I oh. thought that's why they were left. Because if you notice... He waits a beat. He lets her go up the stairs 
in this take. And then he goes up behind her. So his face isn't like right where her ass is, you know? Oh, okay. But maybe it's a combo of things, you know, I don't know. That's why I always thought they were laughing, but you're, you thought someone made a sound. So they were laughing. Yeah. Watch it again. Cause there's like a funny sound, but whether they put that in post-production because of the blooper, I don't know, but right. that's what I thought. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. So <clears throat> once they get to the bottom of the stairs, we meet the floor manager. Now the floor manager is rally bond and he's telling the guys to get a move on because Mr. Sloan is waiting it just shows yeah. how in high regard this Mr. Sloan is, and they call him Mr. Sloan. We don't even know his first name. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And Rally Bond is Mr. Potter. The interesting thing I found out about him is that he played the insurance salesman in The Postman Always Rings Twice. Oh, uh, really? Mm. So that was interesting how he was in that in the movie with Jack Nicholson and he's in this episode of a similar name. I wonder if they tried to cast some of the people from that movie to put a little one more layer of depth to it. Mm. He was um, an American stage and screen actor as well as a nightclub comedian. He was also active as an off-Broadway playwright and author of several mystery stories published in Ellery Queen magazine. He was in episodes of Lou Grant in 78 to 82. I'm just trying to see if he was in Remington Steel. (laughs) Probably. Hill Street Blues, Moonlighting. Yes, so he passed away in August 1989, so it wasn't long after. Mm. But the last thing he did was Mr. Belvedere. Yeah, okay. So that's Mr. Potter. Great. Come join our Facebook community at Fans of Moonlighting the Podcast and our Instagram community at Moonlighting the Podcast. So they take their places and it's announced that the cornet player is not there yet. So they'll start with Rita and the piano player and they start singing Blue Moon. How appropriate. I mean, could they have sung anything else? I mean, what else are you going to sing with Blue Moon, you know? How perfect has that all worked out? Like he's called the thing moonlighting and not even knowing why. He's just called it out in a corridor to this guy at the studio. And now it's just this perfect song for this show. I know. Well, not, yeah, moonlighting and then Blue Moon Detective Agency. And then they do a black and white um, episode. It's it's like, was Glenn playing long ball? He knew, okay, I'm going to call it this because soon (laughs) I'm going (laughs) to, no, he's not, right? It's just perfect. Like the stars were aligned. The stars and, and the moon. The stars and the moon were aligned, Grace. And the fact that Sybil's voice really lends itself to this era of music as well. I mean, she was able yes. to sing that. She has a deep voice. It's, she doesn't have a high voice. So it yeah. was just perfect for that song. Yeah. Blue Moon was actually written by Lawrence Hart and Richard Rogers in 1934. Uh, many people have sang it since. Frank Sinatra, Billie Holiday, Elvis Presley, and many more. Great song. Great song. And, of course, they get interrupted by a cornet player. Making his entrance. What a great entrance. How yeah. good is that entrance? You just see him as a silhouette. Not a silhouette, but you don't see his face. You just see him playing the cornet. I know. You're just like, wow, who's this? Yeah. And even her face, she's thinking, who's this guy? Yes, and how he swaggers in, all the shadows, just the lighting. Couldn't say enough about how great the lighting is. 
again, Bruce playing this version of Zach and how he just saunters in and just kind of takes over the scene. Like his looks, how he looks at her, how he portrays that confidence of a guy who knows he can play the, the instrument well and he's late but doesn't care. The dialogue, the body language, the physical acting, the way he walks in. I just want to jump him. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) Name's Chance. Chance, Cash, Johnny, Brick, Lonesome, Shane, McCoy. You can call me Zach. He's never been hotter, and she's never been hotter. And another thing I like how it's played is Jerry, the husband, even though clearly Zach is checking out his wife right in front of him. Mm. Jerry's smiling. They're so innocent. He's so like an innocent guy. You know, he would never suspect for a moment that this guy would be there to, you know, be like ogling his wife right in front of him and um, have any sinister thoughts about stealing her away or anything like that. Yeah. He even asked Jerry about her specifically, and he's not jealous or anything. He's just I like, know. Oh, yeah. yeah, he just goes up there and he goes up to Jerry and goes, Who's a canary? Yeah. Now, any other guy would have said, Back off, buddy. That's my wife. Exactly. That's my wife, Rita. I think I'm going to like it here. I think I'm going to like it here. Yeah. Just looking her up and down like she's a piece of meat. And Jerry's oblivious and Rita seems a bit offended by him. I think he scares her. Rita doesn't know what to make of Zach when he first comes in. And she seems a little bit scared. Is that the right word by him? You know, intimidated, uh, unsure how to take him and his forward leering. He could be anybody like it's, you know, yeah. you don't know his, the history of his life. So she's a bit unsure of this gentleman. And I think she thinks he's a bit of a jerk because she's singing and he comes in and starts playing over her singing and saunters in and he's late and he's leering and enters a bit of a jerk. And that's how Rita kind of reads him at first. So they restart the number and she's looking at him and then she turns away and it's that night and she's got her lovely glittery outfit on and she's singing it again. I like how they did that transfer. That was a great cut of her turning around and it was the night and she's sparkling and they're on and the audience is there. Yeah, it was really great. I really like this scene because she's singing the song like she normally does. However, he interrupts her song with his playing. Yeah. And at first she doesn't like it. Then he keeps doing it and she's starting to smile as she sings and she's starting to like it. And she's looking up at him and he's looking down at her and they are seriously having sex on stage. Let's just be clear on that, Shauna. <laughs> yeah, I, and I wrote, I love how the music is like their relationship. It's yes. like the music is taking over her, but she kind of likes it. <laughs> yeah, it's the best. It's brilliant. This whole thing is like brilliant, you know, like everything that's happening with, between them, like personally, is happening with the music. And it's like turning her on and he's turning her on and he, she's turning him on. And yeah, it is sex. It is all. It's it all is music metaphorically. And, yes. It's so good. Yeah. So well done. And she's starting to feel a spark probably in her life. Um, you know, I doubt she ever had that kind of spark for Jerry, but something's happening. The thing I was thinking about as well, let's remember how was this shot? Okay. This is how good Bruce and Sybil are. They're not doing that in real time. They're shooting Sybil, and then later, hours later, they're shooting Bruce, and they're still throwing those looks at each other, and they're still reacting to each other like that, even though that's not happening. They don't have a camera on Bruce and a camera on Sybil. No. Those are two different shots filmed at two different times, and they still throw those looks, and they st- you're still getting that chemistry, yeah. which really amazing on their part. 
Yeah, goodness knows who she's looking at. It could be somebody standing there in his place or there could be nobody. I don't know what they did there, but, yeah, it's a different camera angle, so they would have had to set that up. So It's often the different times. And that look that he throws, that, like, yeah, like exactly. raising his eyebrows kind of thing, like, yeah. you know, you know what I know. <laughs> but I just feel that from the beginning of this number to the end of this number, she transforms. Mm. I feel that she gains more confidence and I don't know, it's... And she's feeling good. I know. It's it's great. It's beautiful. And during this number, we see Agnes as a waitress. And I she shows her lovely long legs. Go, Agnes. Yeah. She's wearing that little bodice and everything. She looks great. Yeah, I love Agnes as the cigarette girl. She looks gorgeous. I love how they've dressed up Agnes. She looks terrific. Yeah. Now, <sighs> Sybil, you're killing me. They finish the number, they close the curtains, she's walking off stage and she's barefoot. Yeah, she's barefoot. She's not wearing any shoes, I know. Why? Because it's Sybil. Because in the next shot when she's in that same dress and she comes off the stage, she's wearing shoes. I know. I I noticed the same thing. You know, Sybil, she doesn't like shoes. So I think there were probably multiple takes or that she was on her feet too long. You know, she probably didn't want those shoes on. So, yes, she did a take barefoot. And there's no way in hell that she would ever be barefoot on stage singing with the big band and all of that in real, in real. No. So that was definitely Sybil. And again, she walks off the stage. Mr. Potter gives her a drink and Zach blocks her way. I like mm-hmm. how you warble. I know. I like how you warble. Thanks. But next time I think we should practice at first. Mm-hmm. Why practice? We're perfect together. We're perfect together. Why? Why bother? Yeah, he just is, uh, gosh, he just starts overwhelming her in a way, you know. He has an answer for kind of like David Addison. And then Jerry comes up, and I love the double meaning. I'd like to do more duets with you, Mrs. Adams. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Cheeky boy. (laughs) Very cheeky here. Almost as cheeky as Sybil in the the behind-the-scenes interview. And Jerry, in his innocence, is very encouraging of this. Oh, that'd be wonderful saying, oh, yeah, you guys should practice together and, yeah, spend more time with my wife, you good-looking, handsome, musical man <laughs> that just showed up you know, <laughs> out of nowhere who's talking to her before I even get to her when we get off, you know, got off stage. That's right. I mean, he could be an ex-murderer for all he knows. Again, just the acting on Sybil and Bruce's part, the way that the nose-to-nose, you know, they're facing each other. And do you know Sybil, she does kind of an extra breath and kind of like, leans into him a little bit yeah. as she's kind of like breathing and yeah. just the nuances of this sexual chemistry that's really going on between them. Oh my gosh. It's just, Oh my God, it's amazing. And they both look so hot. I know. I mean, they're just so beautiful and the dialogue yeah. and the way that they play the scene and how they're so close to each other, but there's, you know, but they shouldn't be, you know what I mean? There's an air of um, naughtiness because she's married and he's seducing her and she has mixed feelings about this and her husband isn't aware and there's just so much going on. And that's right. And we're talking mid forties. So it wasn't something that was, well, put it this way. It wasn't something that was put out there and done in front of people because there's people around, there's people backstage. So, and he's clearly flaunting and going in for the kill, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. I don't know. But I, I really liked her dress. I like the, oh gosh, the design, I I how oh, beautiful halter neck with the diamonds and her earrings. Uh-huh. 
the bust cup inside the bus cup. I like that. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I love that. I love all the sparkle and the black and white just picks up that sparkle. And there's a little sparkle from the strap, from her earring, and then the barrette in her hair as well. Just like the perfect amount of sparkle, again, with the costuming and everything. It was just... There was definitely attention to detail there with the lighting to make sure it wasn't too much sparkle as opposed to the right amount. Uh, But she looked just beautiful. She was made to be filmed in black and white, this girl. Yeah, her look is very much made for this time, this era. And then they meet outside. Woohoo! <laughs> Gosh, and what an exciting moment in moonlighting. Oh, my God. Oh, look, it's just a go-to scene as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I know, I know. And the brilliance of it as well in the bigger picture of moonlighting is that here we are, second season, I mean, not like super, super far into the series, but far enough where viewers wanted to see some action between Sybil and Bruce, Maddie and David. But you can't do that too early to get them kissing and get a lot of sex and romance going on. But none of it's real. It's all in a dream. But satisfy audiences. And this is the first kiss between Sybil and Bruce on screen anyway. May have happened in real life. In the commentary, they reckon it's a building, in one of the back lots or something, not back lots, but... Yeah. Some spot they found it in the at the studio. It hadn't been repainted. So it didn't look new. It had that older feel, like 1940s kind of feel to it. And I love the touch of the old cars and Mm. um they they had the car in the background in the next scene, but gee, it was and he looks great with his hair slicked back and playing and he's playing his cornet. (laughs) Oh my god. Bruce should have slicked that hair back more. I know he did once in a while, but I mean, not really in Moonlighting, but at award shows, you know, outside of Moonlighting and stuff. He just looks so good like that. He looks looked so good. amazing. And she looked gorgeous too as she comes out and she's saying, I don't want you to rehearse with my husband and me. But he he's on to her. He knows that she's attracted to him and I'm confused. I still don't hear anything. Why are you still here talking to me? Why are you still here talking to me? Yeah, she's definitely acting like she is telling him to go away and leave them alone. Don't rehearse with my husband and I, but he kind of plays on her probably a bit of insecurity. Like, have you looked in the mirror lately? Have you looked at yourself? You're looking settled. You're looking married. You know, is that how you envisioned it? You know, like, come on, I know you want more for your life and it's not this life with Jerry. And- oh, he's definitely a, an arrogant, horny, persistent young man. <laughs> yeah. But the also the, um, the blocking, the scene blocking, where he kind of walks her up and backs her up against that staircase he puts his arm up as well blocks her her in yeah Yeah, he's blocking her in in like a few different ways you know and Mm. Sybil or Maddie or Rita is trying to (laughs) resist (laughs) which one are you talking about (laughs) I don't know I don't know I'm confused I guess I'm talking about all three of them once uh Rita is trying to resist but and she even whimpers a little bit before he kisses her yes and then finally, and um, in the script, I guess it was written, the longest kiss in TV history. <laughs> and I like the way he puts his hand behind her head and his thumb kind of moves behind her ear and they sink down. They sink down, yeah. Whoever scripted that scene did a really good job, really good job. Really like how that was done. Yeah, the, the scripting, the dialogue and the and the blocking of it all. Because you've got to remember it's the 40s. And if it's a 40s movie, you can't show anything. There's no sex scenes or nothing. 
So they it's had to do it like a 40s movie. It's all fade to black. Yep. And then the next scene, we understand now this has turned into an affair and it's been going on for two weeks. Mm-hmm. And they're fully in it now. They're really into each other. She's completely on board after a few weeks with uh, Zach. What I noticed about this is when they walk in, first of all, she looks lovely in this outfit with her rattan hat. I like the hat she's wearing. It matches her hairstyle. He comes in, he's got a cigarette, and he's going, hey, dollface, where's the fire? But when he says, hey, dollface, it doesn't match when he says, where's the fire? Oh, okay, really? I didn't know that. Because he goes, hey, dollface, where's the fire? Instead, he says, where's the fire, like a normal person. (laughs) Oh, I see. So it's kind of overdubbed? I don't know. I don't know. He just, the way he says, hey, dollface, doesn't match when he says, where's the fire? But anyway. Hey, dollface, where's the fire? Yeah, so we find out they've been together for the last two weeks and, of course, he's chasing her through the club because she doesn't want to continue with it. She feels guilty. And he says we're perfect together. Stare and Rogers, hot dogs and donuts, bagels and locks. What's bagels and locks? Bagels and locks is, uh, locks are like salmon, probably like a very New York thing, bagels and locks. Um, Yeah, it's uh, salmon on top of uh, a bagel and cream cheese. Oh, okay. Oh, that sounds delicious. Yeah, smoked salmon on cream cheese. And yeah, it's really good with capers and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, bagels and lots. So yeah, things that go well together. But um, hot dogs and donuts. <laughs> hot dogs and donuts. <sighs> Actually, we'll tell the listeners. The other day I sent Shauna a video of myself and my grandson in a supermarket. And I was so excited because on the top shelf in the bakery section, they had bags of bagels. And it's yeah. not something that you find very often in Australia. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I said, look, Shauna, look at this. We've got bagels. I know. You have to come to the States and I'll give you a proper bagel and locks. Yum. Can't wait. Yeah, this whole scene. So it's kind of fun because they're they're together now, you know, an embrace, you know, a very like sultry embrace, her revealing her guilt. This has been the best. And the worst two weeks of my life. And this is something that's mirrored in both dreams that it's the best and worst time of their lives because they're together, but they're betraying somebody. It just is more revealing about what's going on with them in their relationship about two weeks, two weeks in. But he's, of course, you know, chasing, convincing, persisting. Just like David. Definitely mirror image. Yeah. Yeah, mirroring their relationship outside of the dream. Now, a great cut here is when they reach the staircase to go up because he says, if you stop dreaming, you're wasting eight hours a night. And it's, the camera is on the stairs looking down at Bruce and the lighting is so good. After watching that movie last night, I really understand the shadows and the lighting and half of his face is lit and it's bright on one side. It's a great shot of him explaining to her that we can't stop dreaming. But a little tongue in cheek would, uh, if you're not dreaming, you're wasting eight hours a night. That <laughs> <laughs> uh, sounds that sounds like a Glenn line to me. It's definitely a David line, that's for sure. Yeah. So they get up on the catwalk and I like how they just cut him off because he says, all I know is if Jerry was playing the harp and she trips and her foot trips on the catwalk, And the shoes are perfect, by the way, because they're definitely old 40 shoes. And she says, what are you saying? And then they both grab each other and there's a view of them from above them down to where the band is. 
which shows how far the fall is. And he looks at her and he says, long fall from up here. In other words, <laughs> I've got an idea. Yes. And she's starting to get the picture that maybe there's a way to get rid of Jerry. And then we cut to them just finishing a show and walking off stage and, and she's handed a glass of water. And the transition to this scene is great because when they're up on the catwalk and she almost falls, this music comes on and then the mm. music transforms into her singing in the next scene. Right. Honestly, yeah. Alf Clausen did such a good job on this show. It was amazing. His music is so good. Yes, it fits in just perfectly with the with any time, any time frame that they're in. And this is the scene where she comes off with shoes on. Yeah. When I watch this episode, I'll rewind just that part, this part, when she comes off, just the timing um, is just so fun to watch. She's handed a glass of water. She walks forward. You see other musicians cleaning up their instruments. And out of the shadow, the very edge of the screen, out of the shadow, Zach walks out and says, tomorrow. Well, excuse me? Tomorrow. It's going to be okay tomorrow. But his timing of walking out of the shadow, putting the cigarette in his mouth and lighting the cigarette, it's just so smooth. I just love watching that, even that like one little scene of her walking off stage and him walking up to her saying tomorrow, lighting the cigarette and walking away. What I like about this scene is he's trying to light the cigarette and there's one spot where he doesn't light it and he has to click it again. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't throw him off. It doesn't throw him off. He just keeps on going. He goes, don't worry, tomorrow. And he walks off. And at the end of the scene, Jerry comes up to her and grabs her. He doesn't say anything, but it, it's a proud expression on his face. He's yeah. like, oh, I just want to, you know, he loves her so much and he's so proud of her and how she, because he's noticed that her presence on stage has changed. He's actually oblivious to why. <laughs> Where does he think uh, she is all this time that she's with Zach? But he's a trusting husband, a very naive husband. And it's funny, this side of the dream is very much that Zach is corrupting them, just breaking into their little innocent world, you know. But if they want to be together, this is what has to happen, I suppose. So the next scene is them rehearsing before the next show. And... Jerry's explaining how he's really loving the time that they've spent together because he's realised Rita has so much more command on stage. And (laughs) this scene, I just feel that Zach is toying with his prey. You know, he's talking about destiny and fate and you know what I mean, Jerry, don't you? You know what I'm saying? He's going, yeah. And he's like he's toying with him and he's going to play with him first before he kills him. Yeah. It's a little bit like Nino, my cat. And if he ever brings a mouse home, which I never let him in, which he's done several times, he brings it home to the front and he plays with it. He's like, I'm going to torture you. So he tortures it a little bit and then he lets it go. So the mouse thinks it's getting away. But no. Oh, Oh, he's a mouse. And then he'll go and grab it again. He starts torturing it and biting it and lets it go. (laughs) Then the mouse thinks it's getting away. Zach just reminded me of Nino, how he treats his prey. You're right. And, you know, he says something like, well, when Jerry's talking about Rita has so much more command on stage, she's really gotten more confident. And Zach says, yeah, she's become quite an actress. That's right. Yes. So yeah, yeah, it's very arrogant. He's sitting there very arrogant. Like, you don't know what I know. 
your wife is fooling you. She's with me now and you're going to die. <laughs> Jeez, I love the way you say that, Shauna. Just like that. <laughs> that was kind of true. And, but like I was saying, you understand that, don't you, Jerry? Mm. Something. And, and Jerry, whatever Zach is saying to him, Jerry says, yes, I, I think I do. You know what I mean, Jerry? I guess. I mean, destiny, fate, whatever you want to call it. It all means the same thing. What's meant to be is meant to be. You understand that, don't you, Jerry? I think I do. <laughs> He's got no He's idea what the guy's saying. Yeah. He's not quite on the same page as Zach is. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Dream Sequence Always Rings Twice Part 1. Stay tuned next week for Part 2. Well, until next time. I'm Grace. And I'm Shauna. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening, listening to, to Moonlighting, Moonlighting the Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.